Good morning, church. Um, if you could join me and turn your Bibles to Psalm 63. We'll be reading the first eight verses of the psalm. I'll try not to smack my lips like that. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but for those of you who aren't very familiar with me, like Jason said, my name is Sam, and I'm one of the members here. And apparently, I did it again. Okay, I'm going <laughs> to stop pointing that out. I'm sorry. Um, I'm a member here, and apparently, I'm the orange chicken guy. Um, we catered Chinese food a couple weeks ago, and Christine called me out on Facebook as the orange chicken guy. I guess if you order th a triple order of orange chicken at Panda Express one time, you're branded <laughs> as the orange chicken guy for life. Um, but I guess there's worse things to be branded as. Um, that said, it's a real privilege for me to be standing up here. I love our church, I love this community, and so I'm excited to share God's word with everyone. And the sermon title today is Seeking God. And so that's what I'm going to be talking about. And I don't know what pops into your head when I say seeking God. Maybe you're doing really well in your faith. You feel like you're walking with God and you're like, yes, seeking God. Amen, brother. Um, maybe some of you are struggling and your relationship with God feels cold and distant. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the psalm and it's going to act as almost a journal entry for David and we're going to see how the psalmist seeks God and we're going to see how we can learn from him to seek God as well. So let me read the passage for us and then I'll pray and then we can get started. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed, and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it reveals to us who you are and it reveals to us who we are, and it shows us how we're to live in light of that. Would you use today to show us who you are? Would you show us that you're the soul-satisfying God of the universe? Would you stir up affections for you in all of us? We ask that you would do this for the glory of your name and the good of your people. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, before I really get going, I want to give a quick outline for today's sermon. There's going to be three main points, and so for you note-takers out there, I'm going to try to answer three questions about seeking God. The first question is, what does it mean to seek God? Second, why should we seek God? And third, how do we seek God? So what does it mean to seek God? Why should we seek God? And how do we seek God? So question one, 
What does it mean to seek God? I think first, it means we aim to know God personally. Take a look at the first part of verse one. It says, oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. Oh God, you are my God. Right off the bat, I love that this is so personal. This isn't just some abstract theory about an ethereal being up in the clouds, but David is crying out to God, calling him my God. And I think it's easy to go to DG, to come to church and do all the things that we do as Christians, um, just because we're supposed to, but miss Jesus the person. And I think we miss the whole point when we don't aim to know God personally as our God. The Apostle Peter touches on this, the idea that the point is to know God personally. The Apostle Peter touches on this in 1 Peter 3.18 when he says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. It says that Jesus suffered on our behalf, the righteous, Jesus, for the unrighteous, us, that we might be brought to God, that he might bring us to God. So the point of the gospel isn't primarily our forgiveness or our justification, but it's so that we can be brought into fellowship with God. So the point of, so the, point of the gospel isn't that we get to avoid hell or if we feel good, that we're forgiven. Forgiveness by God should lead us to an earnest desire for God. So when David says, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, he's in a way stepping into the fulfillment of his salvation. He longs to deeply know his God. And I think the idea that we can know God personally, that's one thing that makes Christianity unique. I had a friend in college, he was a Muslim, he was my lab partner for a couple classes. Really smart guy, smarter than me. and one day after a lab, we decided to get lunch together and we're talking. I was asking, hey, what are you doing after this? And he told me he was going to mosque. And so we started talking. He started telling me about his relationship with Allah and, and how he views God. And he told me that his relationship with Allah was primarily one between a master and a servant. <laughs> Allah would ultimately judge him for the works he does based on the quality and quantity of the works he does, but he can never really know where he stands with Allah. And he could never personally know Allah. Contrast that with our faith. Our faith where it says that God, he came down to earth to become a man. He suffered in our place. He served us. He ultimately died in our place so that he might bring us into a personal relationship with him. Unlike other religions, we can go to God and say, you are my God, earnestly I seek you. Um, There's an old saying that possession breeds desire, that possession breeds desire. In other words, when we recognize that something is ours, it grows our desire and affection for that thing. I think pet owners, dog lovers can agree with this, right? My wife, for instance, Frances, she's a big dog lover. There's a dog on Instagram, a really cute dog on Instagram she's obsessed with right now called Bambi. Maybe you've seen Bambi on Francis's Instagram stories or maybe she sent you some posts about her, but she's always sending me posts about Bambi. She's in like a cute pose and like she's like doing a goofy face in a video, whatever, and she sends me these because she really loves dogs. When we go out and we see a cute dog, she'll make these weird noises like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) like, oh, She'll, she'll do that because she loves dogs, 
but nothing really compares to her love for her own dog, Chadu. I think if you know Frances well, you know that she had a dog and she loved that dog. She spent every day with that dog. She fed that dog. She walked that dog. Every time she would come home, Chadu would greet her with this like egg yolk crawl and he would, he would get on his back too and she'd give him a belly rub. She loved that dog. She took so many pictures of that dog too. Her camera roll used to be just Chadu, Chadu, Chadu. I was kind of jealous. It wasn't all me. <laughs> but um, I guess I had to share. Um, and then eventually Chadu passed and her friends took one of those pictures and put it on a pillow and that pillow was on our couch and so Chadu's still with us. Um, but... Francis, she has that love for dogs in general, but nothing compared to a love for Chadu because it was her dog. Possession bred desire and affection. And so when David says, oh God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, he's modeling how we ought to view our relationship with God as a personal faith that breeds desire for God. And then this also means that your relationship with God has to be first and foremost between you and God. This means that your faith has to be your own faith. It can't be your parents' faith. It can't be your friend's faith. It can't be Rand's faith or your DG leader's faith. It has to be your own faith. And I think some Christians, they'll drift on the coattails of someone else's faith. They'll go to church and serve in church because that's what's expected of them or because that's what everyone else in their community is doing instead of doing it as the result of a flourishing and personal faith with God. And so if you're a believer, but you recognize yourself in that scenario, I say take heart. It's never too late to start earnestly seeking Jesus for yourself, to read the Bible on your own, and to try to obey what it says and apply it to your daily life. Not because it's what everyone else is doing, but because it's, your, it's the result of your own personal faith with God. And so that's the first idea. Seeking God means we aim to know him personally. He is our God. Second, seeking God means we desire him even in the most unideal circumstances. It means we seek him when we're at our lowest point. Take a look at the heading of the psalm. It says, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. So David's in the wilderness while he's writing this psalm. This is probably when he's fleeing from his son, Absalom as opposed to fleeing from Saul. We know that because David refers to himself as king in verse 11, and when David was running from Saul, David wasn't yet king. <clears throat> and so he's fleeing from Absalom, and, you, and in 2 Samuel 15, it describes what's happening during this time in David's life. His son Absalom wanted to, wanted to overthrow David and wanted the throne for himself, so he's secretly plotting against David to usurp his throne. David catches wind of this um, and realizes he's in trouble and so he flees to the wilderness. <coughs> and can you imagine what that's like for David? Let's put ourselves in David's shoes for a second. Not only is his life in danger, but the threat is coming from his own son. And now he's having to flee to the wilderness so none of us have been in this exact situation as David. None of us are kings. None of our children are trying to usurp authority. Maybe your children are trying to usurp authority, but um, we're not kings, right? We've never felt this kind of 
this kind of situation, but we have felt the sting of betrayal from someone close to us, right? I feel like there aren't many feelings worse than that, than feeling betrayed by someone you trusted. And so this is a truly low moment in David's life. Yet what's his instinct? It's to go directly to God. He doesn't ask for deliverance from a circumstance or victory over his enemy, but he's chiefly asking for God himself. And I have to admit that when I'm going through a difficult season, my first instinct is to try to figure out how to get out of it. I'm always trying to figure out a solution, so I'm mapping in my head, okay, I can do this, I can do this, I can do this, and maybe then this problem will be solved. But David, on the other hand, he realizes that his greatest problem isn't his current season of life, but it's the absence of the presence of God. Let's read the entirety of verse 1. It says, O God, you are my God, earnestly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Yes, David's in a desperate situation where he's running for his life. Yes, his own son has betrayed him and has become an enemy. But what he wants most in this moment is more of God. And so what's your instinct when you're going through a tough season, through a difficult time in your life? What's the first thing we do when we find ourselves in trouble? Do we ask God for more of him? And I don't know about you, but maybe, maybe some of us might hear how David seeks after God during this dark season and think that, that doing that in your dark season is beyond what you're capable of. Our attention and energy, they're occupied by sickness or loneliness or financial difficulty or relational pain or by our own sin and we're just trying to survive. But I think God wants to use that difficulty to teach us how much we need him. David, he writes that he's thirsting after God, but he's probably actually thirsty as well. He's in the desert. He's away from the comfort of his own home. He's running from his enemies. And there's a clear parallel between his physical state and his spiritual state. And I think God gives us these physical realities so that we're pointed towards something deeper. So when we do have sickness, He's pointing us to the spiritual sickness that he can heal. When we're feeling lonely, he, he's pointing us toward a deep longing that can only be satisfied by him because he will never leave us or forsake us. When we're in financial difficulty, he's pointing us to let go of our desire for any earthly thing and know that we have a far greater treasure in him. So there are tough seasons for everybody, but do we have the wisdom to ask God um, to be near us rather than to have these circumstances be far from us? Do we have the wisdom to have these seasons point us toward God instead of trying to figure out a solution for ourselves? I think that's something for, us, for all of us to think about and examine. So that's the first idea. What does it mean to seek God according to the psalm? It means we know God personally, and it means we desire him in our darkest seasons. Next, Let's look at why we should seek God. And I don't think because we're supposed to or because that's what Christians do is a good enough reason. I don't think that really lasts. I don't think you can sustain a relationship with God because th that's what you're supposed to do. And so in other words, I want to try to answer the question of what really motivates us to seek God. What really motivates us to pursue a relationship with God. And so the first reason why we should seek God 
is that he's satisfying. He satisfies us. Meaning there's an existential fulfillment we can find in God and, re- and in relationship with him that we can't find anywhere else. Read verses five and six. It says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. When David seeks God, he remembers and meditates on God and he's satisfied. He's satisfied as if he just ate a great meal. I think eating is something pretty much everyone universally enjoys, right? Um, I think all of us can relate to that satisfaction of biting into a juicy piece of steak or getting that perfect bite of ramyun where the noodle to kimchi ratio is just right. Just, just one of the most satisfying bites of food I think I can have. And that's what everyone's chasing, right? Not food necessarily, but that feeling of satisfaction, a fulfillment of a longing in our souls. And the Bible is filled with promises of satisfaction for God's people. Read John 6:35. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Psalm 107, 9, for he satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Psalm 22, 26, the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Psalm 16, 11, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And if you've been going to church for a while, this idea isn't new. Right? I think we've heard in one form or another that only God can truly satisfy us. And I think we know in our heads that that's true. But I think if we're honest, if we're really honest, we don't always live like God is the only thing that can truly satisfy us. Um, at least I don't always live like that. I think one of the idols of my heart is comfort. I find myself doing whatever I can to avoid discomfort, even though I know that a faith in Jesus is inherently uncomfortable. That comfort is diametrically opposed to walking with Jesus. And being a disciple of Jesus means I deny myself, I take up my cross, I'm subject to persecution, I give up the material comforts of home, and have to be willing to give up all of my material possessions, yet in my flesh, I don't naturally want to do any of those things. I know that when my soul will be, that my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food when I seek God and let go of my earthly desires, but it's not always easy for me to do that. Maybe for you, it's not comfort like me, but I think we all have something that we turn to to satisfy us. Um, that's not God. And so what is that for you? What do you find yourself daydreaming about? I think that's a good test. What do you, I think you just let your mind wander and it starts daydreaming. And if you just have that one thing you've been daydreaming about, your life will feel complete. What is that thing? Is it school accomplishments for you? Is it career advancement? Is it getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend, a spouse? Is it having a thriving marriage? Or maybe it's wanting your kids to grow up and be healthy and successful. And a lot of those things I listed are good things, but even good things have a habit of becoming greater desires for us. 
than God himself. And by focusing on those things above God, we end up missing God altogether. There's a great book called The Things of Earth by Joe Rigney, and the title of the book is derived from the song Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus, and I think you guys know the song. We've sang it before. It goes, turn your, turn your eyes. I'm, I was about to sing it, <laughs> but <laughs> I aborted real quick. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Right? And, and the thesis of the book is that while that's true, it's also true that the things of earth can grow strangely bright in the light of his glory and grace. In other words, when we framed things properly and God is at the center, our enjoyment of the good things God gives us can be enhanced. For instance, take a really good meal. My favorite food, contrary to popular belief, is not Panda Express. It's sushi. I love sushi, I'm gonna go eat it today. Ooh, sushi club. There's no sushi club. Um, but, <laughs> but I love a good piece of yellowtail. I think yellowtail is probably my favorite fish. Um, and sushi on its own is very good, right? But how much more enhanced would my satisfaction in sushi be if I were to eat it actively knowing that it's a good gift from God that he gives me because he loves me? And so when we keep God at the center of enjoying these good things, it can enhance our enjoyment of that thing. And so food is good, friends are good, enjoying career success is good, having a spouse and kids, kids, that's all good. But all of these good gifts are designed to point us to the generous God who gives these gifts. And when we seek these good gifts above God, we lose sight of the fact that God himself is ultimately more satisfying than all of his gifts could ever be. Um, Jonathan Edwards puts it this way. God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of him is our proper and is the only happiness with which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. And do we believe this? I know I said that sometimes we live our lives like we don't believe this, but I think if you're a believer, I think you do feel this way at the core. I think you understand this. Your eyes might wander, and right now you might feel a little distant from God, but in your heart of hearts, you feel this to be true because you've experienced that satisfaction before. If you are a believer and you've put your faith in Jesus, you've experienced the fulfillment he gives to your soul. And so it's my hope that we seek and experience God in, in a way where our eyes wander less and God is the ultimate source of our satisfaction. And I shared earlier that an idol of mine is comfort and that it's not natural for me to deny myself, to take my cross, to invite persecution, all of that. But there are times when it does feel easy and natural and those are the times when I'm understanding the gospel and I'm moved by the love of God. And that brings us to our second reason why we should seek God, and it's because he loves us. So let's read verse three. 
It says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. David is saying that God's, God's love is better than life. It's God's love that is ultimately satisfying to us. I think this is the chief reason as to what should motivate us to pursue God and to seek God. But what kind of love is God's love exactly? How does it differ from my love that I give to you, to my wife? How does it differ from anyone else's love? Well, let's look at the love that David experienced. Um, If you grew up in the church, you're probably familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, Let me try to summarize it real quick. David, the one who wrote this psalm, he was the king of Israel, and at the time he saw a woman in Bathsheba and he liked her, but she was already married to someone else, and so he took her, he committed adultery with Bathsheba, he got her pregnant, he then murdered her husband, and then tried to cover it all up multiple times. He tried to get away with his sin, but God saw it all. But then when God sends his prophet Nathan to confront David about that sin, instead of making excuses or trying to cover it up even more, David responds to him by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. He repents. He acknowledges his sin before God, and while there are consequences for his sin, he ultimately receives forgiveness from God. David thought he could clean up his sin on his own, and he he thought he could take it to his grave, but there's nothing that we can hide from God. (laughs) Instead, David receives grace and and a restored relationship with God (laughs) through repentance and faith. And that's the love that David's talking about. That's the love that he's saying is better than life, and so his lips will praise God. That's that love. A love that sees all of our sin, yet offers a way back to God through repentance and faith. And that's the exact same love that God offers all of us. I don't know, maybe you're thinking, I don't, at least I, I never sinned like David did. I never committed adultery. I never murdered anyone and then tried to cover it up. But the truth is, you're in as much need of grace and forgiveness as David. Every instance we choose to live our own way instead of God's way is rebellion and treason against God, and God must enact justice against rebellion. And maybe you're on the other side, and you're thinking, man, I've just had the worst week ever. Maybe you didn't spend any time with God this week. You were impatient with your family. Maybe you're harboring some bitterness towards someone, a coworker family member, someone at this church. Maybe you watch pornography and you masturbated this week and you're sitting there feeling beaten down by your sin and so your heart feels hard toward the love of God. The truth is God's not surprised by your sin. He's not sitting there and thinking, oh my gosh, I didn't know Sam was going to be this sinful. I'm out. He sees all of our sin, past, present, future. He knew that you and I were going to be messy God sees through all of our masks and goes straight to the heart. He sees our sinfulness, our brokenness. He sees all of the dark corners of our hearts that we're too scared to share with other people. And he said, I will send my son to die for their sins so that they can receive forgiveness and a new life with me. He saw us in our rebellion and said, I will crush my own son as if he was the rebel so that this broken person can be in my family. That is the love that God is offering, and that is the love that is better than life. And that isn't to say that we can just excuse our sin because it's all forgiven anyway. 
but the forgiveness and love that God offers should lead us to cling to Jesus in faith, repent and forsake our sin because Jesus hates sin. And so that's the love that God's offering us and that's what we're all searching for. And Tim Keller says this about that kind of love. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is a lot like being loved by God. It's what we need more than anything. And that's the love that's better than life, the one that sees us in our brokenness, in our sin, even in those moments when we don't want to, when we don't want to repent. God sees us, all of that in our sin, and he's offering that love anyway. And what's the result of receiving God's love? We can't help but praise him. Read verses three and four. It says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David says, because God's love is better than life, his lips will praise God. That's the ultimate result of being satisfied by God. We praise him. And this is what naturally happens uh, when, we're, when we're satisfied by something. When, when I eat something delicious, I just can't help but say something. Oh my gosh, that was so good. When you watch a good movie, we like, yes, that was great. This was great. This guy was good. That guy was good in that movie. We love to praise things that we're satisfied by. We can't help it. And I don't mean to keep bringing her up, but my wife, she's a big fan of Korean dramas. I think many of you guys know this. <laughs> um, I think, and she likes to post Korean drama reviews on Instagram. I'm sure you've seen them. Uh, she's pretty much the Roger Ebert of Korean dramas. Um, and when she really loves a Korean drama, she can talk about it for hours, right? I think she's talked to Rand about Korean dramas. I know Rand, another Korean drama guy. <laughs> I love that about him. Um, but she can talk about that drama for hours. She's talked to me about dramas for hours before. Uh, and we'll end up talking about how much she loved the directing, the the cinematography, the character development, she just, she just gets so much enjoyment from talking about how great the drama was because that's the natural overflow of her heart when she's satisfied by something. And this is the exact same when we experience and are satisfied by God's love. We can't help but praise him. When we truly understand that God's love is better than life, we will bless him as long as we live. And so that's what happens when we're satisfied by God's love. And so that's why we should seek God, because one, he satisfies us. Two, because it's ultimately his love that satisfies us and that leads us to praise him. Which brings us to our final question. How do we seek God? I think much of this I already touched on a little bit, but I think the first way to seek God is that we must stop seeking other things. In other words, if we want to have an appetite for God, we have to stop ruining our appetite with lesser things. But I think that's easier said than done. No Christian wakes up and says, I guess I'm going to have to seek other things besides God today. No one is forced to seek other things besides God. No one sins out of duty. So then why do we do it? Why do we seek these other things? It's because it feels good. It's because it does satisfy us for a little bit. And because being satisfied by those things feels good, we've bought into the lie 
that those things are more satisfying than God. And the only way to truly fight that impulse is to replace it with a superior pleasure. We have to remind ourselves constantly that Jesus is more satisfying than any earthly pleasure, that the good things on earth are just drops, but God is the ocean. And so that's the first thing. It's that we have to remind ourselves, we have to fight against that lie that these things are better, but we have to remind ourselves, no, Jesus is better. So that brings us to the next way we seek God, which is to remember who God is and what he's done. Take a look at verses five through seven. It says, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. David, he's remembering who God is and is meditating on him, and that's what's triggering the satisfaction. He's thinking about God, he's meditating on God, and that's when he feels satisfied as with fat and rich foods. And so take time to remember truths about God. Take time to preach the gospel to yourself when you're lying in bed, feeling distant from God. Remember to meditate on him and don't move too fast from each truth, but let it linger in your mind. Take time to remember what God has done for you, how he's helped you, how he's comforted you, how he's protected you. And I think the ultimate way to do all of these things is by praying and meditating on God's word. There's no better way to know and remember God than through his word and through prayer. I think most people who feel stagnant in their faith, if you're sitting there and you feel like you're distant from God and your heart feels cold, I think most people who feel that way, it's because they're not making time for God. Look at David. David, he's being... He's being pursued by his son. He's fleeing in the wilderness, yet he's still making time to cry out to God in the psalm. He's still making time to, to go to God in prayer, to remember God. And so we have to make time. We ultimately make time for what we value. And that's and how we spend our time, and it exposes our lack of desire for God, and so pray, pray through that. Maybe you can write down your convictions to read them again later to remind yourself of what the Bible is teaching you. (laughs) Maybe you can memorize a verse that challenged you, and you can recite it to yourself during your commute so that you can let it linger in your mind. Don't just read the Bible, but meditate on it and pray through it so that the truths sink deep down so that they stay with you, so that They can transform you so that when you're in the midst of a battle with sin, you can remember that truth and say, no, Jesus is better than giving in to temptation. Personally, I like to journal. It helps me kind of gather my thoughts. I like to write down um, convictions from the the Bible passage I wrote that day. I like to write down confessions of my sins. I like to write down people who I'm praying for. It helps me kind of organize it in my mind and it helps me slow down a little bit and process it better. I don't know what works for you, 
But whatever it is, go to God. Go to God in prayer. Go to God in the Bible and meditate on him. I think meditation is a lost art. I think we're getting bombarded with a million miles an hour, this, this, this. At least for me, that's true. I'm always listening to some sort of podcast. I'm listening to music. There's something going in always, always, always. I think I need to stop sometimes and meditate and think. Thomas Watson said that we find our hearts are often cold because we don't warm them in the fires of meditation. And so let's take time not just to read the Bible, but to slow down and let the truths of God linger in our minds and in our hearts so that they can warm our hearts and take root there. <clears throat> now, uh, if we take a look at verse two, David also takes time to remember what worshiping with God's people is like. Verse two, it says, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David is remembering the times he's worshiped in the house of God with the rest of God's people in Jerusalem. He's out in the wilderness right now, fleeing. He isn't able to worship in Jerusalem, but he's bringing himself back to that place, and he remembers what it's like to behold God in corporate worship. It's helping him get to a place where he, he's beholding God's power and glory, and he remembers that experience. And it's my hope that as our church prays and sings and learns together, that, would, that we would re- truly be beholding God's power and glory, and that it would bring us back to a place where we remember God's goodness and greatness in those moments when we feel cold. Um, And lastly, when you feel like you're out of options and your soul is in the desert, cling to God. David writes this in verse eight. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. The word cling, I think it gives off the impression that we're desperately holding on to him, that we're at the end of our rope, but we will not let him go. And when we do that, we'll realize that he's actually the one who upholds us. He's actually the one who's holding on to us. So when you're in the valley like David, when your soul is in the desert, learn to cling desperately to God because he will uphold you. And so that's how we seek God. We don't spoil our appetites. We remember who he is and what he's done, and we cling to him. So I'll close our time by asking you, how are you doing with God? Are you seeking him? Do you feel like you're being satisfied by his steadfast love? I encourage you to do some self-examination this week. What are the things that you're seeking after above God himself? And if you're in a place where your heart feels cold, but you want to want God, where you want to be satisfied by him, but are struggling with that right now, I feel you. I read this psalm and I struggle with it because I don't always feel this way. I want to feel that way, but I don't a lot of the times. I want to seek him like this. And so if you're like me, where your heart isn't always there, but you want it to be, I'll leave you with this quote by A.W. Tozer, and I hope it becomes your prayer. He said, Oh God, I have tasted thy goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. 
I am ashamed of my lack of desire. O God, the triune God, I want to want thee. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me thy glory, I pray thee, so that I may know thee indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love in me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow thee up from this misty lowland where I've wandered so long. Let's pray. God, we thank you. Thank you that you know us, that there's nothing we can hide from you. Every corner of our hearts, all of our motives, all of our desires, you see them all. And so there's comfort there because know that we don't have to be anyone else. We don't have to put up these walls or fronts when we're coming to you. Um, And so we thank you for that. Thank you for loving us despite that. Thank you for sending your son to die for us on our behalf so that we might have eternal life, life that is truly life, knowing you, loving you, seeking you. God, we confess that our desires are often for earthly things, that our desire for your good gifts sometimes overwhelms our desire for you. Would you change our appetites? Would you give us a greater appetite for you? Would you satisfy us with your steadfast love that we might praise you? And this isn't something that we can muster up, but we need your Holy Spirit to change us, to help us, to guide us. And so as we go about the rest of our week, would you help us? Help us to walk with you and pursue you and seek you as we see that you're pursuing us and you're loving us and you're walking with us. So we thank you for loving us. Thank you for being our God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.